0: Hello, and uh, welcome to The Spaceship Earth with me, Dan Burgess. Uh, This is episode three of The Spaceship Earth podcast. Um, I hope you've been uh, enjoying uh, the first two, if you listen to them. If if not, um, have a go. Um, Learning by doing, sort of finding my way into this whole thing. Um, In this episode, I'm continuing my kind of ocean-related sort of plasticky kind of theme, which, of course, is uh, a lot happening right now in our culture. and I've been chatting with uh, Tim Nunn, who is a uh, professional surf photographer, filmmaker, and creative activist, um, as he's founder of The Plastic Project. Um, and Tim and I have been chatting on and off for, for a couple of months now, uh, trying, to, trying to sort this interview out, we've, we've now done it. Um, Tim has spent um, much of his life in or by the ocean, um, and he has been professionally documenting surf culture, through photography and film um for a couple of decades really um he's um an author of um a cold water surf book called numb he's traveled to probably some of the remotest parts of our of our planet um and he's he surfed there and he's he stayed there and he's documented uh many of these extraordinary places from the perspective of the ocean Um, and uh, while he's been doing that um, he began to notice uh, plastics floating up uh, in these remote shores um, and in the ocean around him and he basically just started to point his camera away from capturing the surfer and towards the plastic Um, and I think why this is so interesting I was drawn to Tim's work because it's a really strong way of showing um, and capturing why Uh, Clearly we are living on a spaceship Earth. Uh, This is an interconnected planet, it's a living planet, uh, and there is no concept of away. You know, you can't throw stuff away. Um, If you do, um, it comes back, as we can see. We can't hide our waste, and single-use plastics are a classic example of this. They're coming at us from all over the shop. So in this episode, um, I talked to Tim about a bunch of stuff. He shares some of his story of... um, How we got into surf photography, Um, I was asking a bit like what's it like to take photos in massive waves and huge sets crashing on your head. the evolution of surf photography and film, particularly as it sort of transitioned into digital because uh, Tim started his his work um, probably about, you know, I think we're quite similar ages. So, you know, he started with analogue and um, using film um, and the transition to digital. Digital, um, And he talks about some of his tales of, of travelling and surfing and camping in some of the sort of coldest and most remote parts of the planet. And then the sort of birth of the plastic project, as he as he started to document uh, the plastic ocean situation, along with other photographers. And um, Tim's got a new film coming out. Um, it's a short film coming out this summer. Um, from the Plastic Project, um, which he's built with a network of other pro surf photographers around the world, which basically starts to tell the story of ocean plastics that's really been coming over sort of 20-year-plus span um, to to what we uh, to the mess we currently find ourselves in today, and this film sort of documents some of that as well as kind of showing us the kind of the sort of extraordinary beauty um, and adventure and all kinds of other amazing stuff that the ocean offers us as humans, if um, we could all just start to sort of value it, really. Um, so that's coming. So it was a really good chat with Tim, and um, we talk about all of this stuff. We also talk about some of the kind of challenges around, how, you know, how do we evolve from this kind of vast consumption-led, disposable culture, you know, which is, you know, where, where plastic really is the kind of central kind of. Actor to, to this system of fast consumption it's so embedded in in how we go about our crazy fast lives so the whole transition uh, away from that to something slower more more considered than life life-centered as I, as I would say anyway um hope you enjoy here we go and um yeah here's tim tim hi Dan. how are you i'm good how's it going yeah, not too bad. Yeah, where where are you now, by the way? Where, where are you based? Uh, uh, in Hel- in Hosego. Tell us a bit about hosco because I guess there's obviously folks that won't know, you know, the place and stuff. Tell us a little bit about it and what and,
1: what uh, there and... Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's the sort of it is the the centre of European surfing. Yeah. So it is where not not every surf company is based, but most, and you know, it's argu- arguably one of the best beach breaks in the world as well. So it's kind of it's kind of the hub of what goes on in Europe, basically. So, right, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a weird place. A mix of what's quite a wealthy, I guess, beach resort town and surfing, really. So, yeah, this this time of year very empty. Yes. And then incredibly busy for about two months in the summer. <laughs> so. I can imagine.
0: Give me just like before we get into sort of now. Give me um, mm-hmm. just a bit of a bit of i guess a bit of context of your your story really really i guess how you came to be doing what you're doing (laughs) yeah sure
1: um so i i have a sort of environmental background because i did environmental science slash geography at university so i've always had a a pretty big uh kind of passion for that side of things anyway yeah um and then but i didn't carry on after university i sort of went into filming and i went into filming and then photography and i kind of it was sort of one of those sort of a bit lucky really i did quite a lot of filming and then i was actually going to give up and my best friend roger sharp became editor of surf europe and at the same time i ended up sharing a house with a guy called alex who was the founder of the surfers path magazine as well so i ended up sort of shooting for both of them and then becoming photo editor and then an editor of wavelength so got it and so yeah did you already i
0: mean Tell us about your, your connection to the ocean. That, was that already there? And tell me about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, it was t- absolutely there because I I literally grew up on one of the Norfolk Broads, and so I sort of sailed windsurf from very young age and done a lot of um, kind of dinghy sailing on, on the sea. And then I got into even up in Norfolk, we surf quite a bit from a young age. So yeah, I had a pretty pretty solid sort of connection to the ocean and water from the word go yeah Yeah. there was always going to be some kind of I chose go I chose to go to Aberystwyth University because they had a sailing club and there was surf there it wasn't based on academic leading academic that sort of thing so so you you you
0: effectively have been shaped by the environment yes yeah yeah so I've never been
1: very far away yeah from the ocean apart from a six month stint in Milton Keynes I've always lived (laughs) right by the sea. That's quite
0: an achievement, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> only yeah. six
1: months, and in Milton Keynes. Um, well, it was, I didn't really like Milton Keynes, like, but it was amazing to get to places from there. I've got to say. Yes. So, just yes. get anywhere in about two hours, it seems. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and so, so you say so. Phil it started war with filmmaking. Um, yeah. And then, how did you yeah. switch to to photo? Tell me about that. That's kind of well. But, into... well but
1: I tell you what happened. What happened was my best mate, Roger Sharp, Sharpie, who's now the editor of Carve Mag. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really into photography, and I was quite into photography. And we went off around the world and surfing, and he shot a lot. And then I I was pretty interesting in the filming side of things, and I just I just literally got a camcorder and started making some films and filming for other people, and I made about thirteen or fourteen films. But this was back in the days of sort of VHS and DVDs. So what way, doing, way it roughly when's this year-wise? This would be uh, late '90s, I suppose, was the peak of it. Yeah, mm. and then um, it, it, it was a. it People probably wouldn't understand it now, but then it was a laborious and tight. You, you essentially film for a year and then put a film out, or me, or maybe if you you really planned when you could do one in six months, and then you put a film out. Then you had to travel with it and promote it, and you <laughs> so, you, you know you physically mail ordered things it wasn't like you film for a few days and put it straight onto vimeo or something that and it was actually it was a lot of investment you generally actually sort of broke even on it but it the actual long process of making a film was actually used to get me down a bit and so the photography side of it kind of it was a mixture of um alex and sharpie getting me into telling me you need to start shooting because there weren't there wasn't many people shooting in england at the time yeah and also it was part of it that when you did a photography project you literally went and you shot something for a week or two and you created something out of it and i liked the fact that you could then you know you so you created something in a couple of weeks and it was out there rather than spending a whole a yeah. whole year doing something basically yeah so. yeah.
0: so you you could you could basically get stuff out into the world a lot that's faster. right yeah yeah but but even then i guess even from photography you know you're still talking having to develop photos and
1: yeah absolutely i mean it still started off with um it was all film to start with yeah i mean i was i was yeah i suppose um yeah i was still well into the film bit digital didn't come along i was pretty early adopter of digital but um yeah, I'd spent a good four years of shooting film. Yeah. Five years, yeah. So that was pretty that was pretty time-consuming, but it was also uh, the kind of um, swings and roundabouts, really, with film and digital, because the remuneration was way better then.
0: Yeah.
1: And there were a lot less people doing it, yeah. so so it was worth the, yeah. <laughs> worth the hassle. <laughs> that's quite,
0: um, I guess, that whole transition as well, from a sort of more from <clears throat> an artist's perspective is like, yeah, mm. you, I guess you're taking pictures, and again, you're you're trusting you've got the shots as well, right? Because that's can't, right. Yeah, you yeah. Can't see
1: them, and it definitely helped being a film photographer first. Right. Yeah, absolutely helped because I mean, uh, uh, having worked on like a picture desk for uh, essentially, you used to see a lot of people who really weren't very, you know, that they'd come to digital and didn't understand the basics of exposure and things like that. Yeah, and so you get absolutely you just get terrible pictures coming in which you couldn't recover and they were they were good they were they were good photographs but technically not really usable so yeah so so how coming from a film background is actually good because you actually learn how to how to use a camera properly basically so. yeah yeah exactly I mean, but the transit the transition was hard though because at the start there was um I mean, the quality was sucked for ages, and the speed and the quality wasn't very good, and and it took a while. It was very difficult because magazines suddenly didn't want to start paying for scanning and film anymore, and there was a there was a period for quite a while where really, the, although the digital cameras were okay, they weren't as good as film, so it was a bit of a tricky tricky mm. bit of that. And has that
0: as the I guess it's... Probably changed again, but I guess when these these transitions were happening from film to digital, like, did it change the sort of I don't know the creativity or the experience, or was there any difference for you? Or
1: yeah, the great thing about digital is is that yeah, there's no excuse never to not shoot. (laughs) And back in the day with film, especially in the UK and Northern Europe, there were days when it was so dark and dingy. didn't want to waste film even if it was epic hmm. and black and white which we preferred to shoot on transparencies and black and white transparencies weren't particularly great there was one for a short while which was good so you tended to be quite cautious what you shot um but i think so little, it definitely it definitely enhanced creativity but hmm. it also made people ridiculous on how much they submitted and things like that as well so so that made it difficult.
0: And taking photos in the ocean, like and in waves, and you know, it's, it's a big
1: deal when it comes to actually, you know, wave knowledge and and everything. It is so
0: yeah, uh, I'm guessing. And like you that. did,
1: and 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 especially when you get into serious waves. I mean, this week was pretty pretty heavy down here, and it, you know, you have a lot of experience. There's only a couple of guys out swimming and. And it's actually quite a workout as well, and it's just about knowledge of how waves break more than anything. So,
0: yeah, and to give uh, us a sense of like the this, the this, this, you know sort of waves you've found yourself in amongst at times in terms of scale. Um,
1: and... I mean, I've you know I've spent a lot of time in places like Hawaii and places like that, and I mean down here in France and Ireland. It, it, because I've spent so much time in the water, it's sort of it's not it's not really a massive issue for me now but you you kind of do that you are very you're much more cautious than people think you are and you are you know very very well where where things break and there's a there's actually a lot of kind of um research and study etc of looking at it so so it's you know it's a lot more um than just swimming out and hoping sort of thing so
0: yeah absolutely i'm guessing positioning positioning is everything i'm guessing and like how you kind of you know how
1: you work you're working with the water right to kind of like yeah exactly i mean you kind of do you do spend a lot of time sort of um you know analyzing the conditions and seeing where rips are and and where everything is breaking
0: but i was just curious like have you ever have you ever sort of as you've journeyed into um surf photography have you ever found yourself in situations where you've been pardon the pun but out of your depth or where you've been kind of tonked by so yeah. i would just love to understand how that you know there must have been some scary moments at, at some point
1: there i mean yeah there, there always is like uh, i mean it's kind of it's hard to explain to people but you kind of uh without saying <laughs> stupid you kind of embrace getting beaten around a bit yeah uh, as all part of it and you just learn to calm down but yeah definitely and still do i mean the the key is always i find is generally generally speaking the the safest thing is actually going out through surf because you kind of pick a way out and it's actually quite easy to get out and shoot whether you're in hawaii obviously there's a certain size limit you get to where it becomes impossible but it, it you always have to figure out a route back in and that's generally where things go more wrong than actually when you're when you're going out and actually when you're out shooting so I mean I've had little mishaps I remember getting kicked in the face by a fellow photographer at Pipeline in Hawaii and it kind of and you get into a stroke and he literally dived in front of me and his flipper kicked me in the face and it put me off and I got a pretty big set on the head and got smashed into the reef but and you know you have little things like that happen but generally the most worrying the the most dangerous thing is actually when you come back in again because Mm. and it tends not to happen in places like beach breaks because a beach break essentially except for really really crazy ones like in mexico um they tend to just eventually they let you go and wash you up on the beach um even if it's quite heavy so like france down here gets pretty heavy and generally as long as you're sensible you can just sprint in and body surf smaller ones in no matter how big it is places like Mexico are different because they they're just another level of heaviness really but the this I guess the sketchiest moments are not not so much when you're getting smashed up by waves necessarily but if you've been shooting in the water for three or four hours somewhere cold like Scotland or Ireland and then you have to come in and you have to kind of have your exit exit route quite well planned and it's something uh, it's the only time it's the only times i've ever ever had to help other photographers really who are less experienced whereby they haven't figured out an exit route after the surf and you get tired and then you can't get in very easily so mm. and I've had, a f- I've had a few times when i've ended up swimming for like 30 40 minutes against currents just trying to get to the right place to get out and that sort of thing there were, there were places like um uh, some of those slabs in ireland and slabs in northern scotland where getting out is actually way harder than getting into the water because you can just time it mm. and you can literally swim out without getting your head underwater but then coming in the currents are generally pulling back off the rocks and yeah so that that's the sketchiest thing more mm. more getting more getting cold and just having to keep swimming and swimming to get to the right sort of exit point on a couple of places especially when it's getting dark and the swells rising that sort of thing but yeah, on, on the whole sessions are pretty well planned as where you're going So that's, that's interesting key. so
0: there is there is there's definitely a, a lot of pre-planning when you before you yeah. get out there and
1: absolutely yeah you have to find out where to go you figure out where to swim in and where to come back in get out again they're the two keys because that's the that that's the that's the real problem actually being in the surf you you get waves on the head but you know generally that's not so bad hmm. Because your fitness um, must be right up
0: there. Because I, cause I, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a longboarding dad, dad surfer, you know, who who has been pummeled quite a bit. But I know hmm. that if I lose grip of that board, could be quite, could be quite terrifying. With when you know when you've got a set on the head and, and I guess we, you're you're swimming around with with your camera and stuff, and you're out there for quite a long time. And it must, well, you know, does that. That's quite a big shift isn't it of of being very very free I guess with no board and just
1: Yeah. I think I think there's two yeah there's two things really that one you are totally free without a board so you'd be surprised how deep you can get under waves there are hmm. there are very few places in the world where you can't dive and get completely under a set wave for example places like very shallow reefs I mean you talking about like slabs and things you generally Generally speaking, you find you you figure out where the escape routes are through the reef, so you Got can it. still get into gullies and under them there, there are places like Mexico like Puerto Escondido and places like that where you just if you get caught inside, you get annihilated but yeah. um as <laughs> simple as that but so you so you have a freedom to be able to dive under sets, but on the flip side you when you're swimming, you do not have the same speed as a board as being on a board does so if you spot a bigger set coming you know, suddenly a surfers made the guy you're shooting is, has made 20 meters to your five sprint, sprint paddling sometimes. Mm. And that makes a difference. Um, but you know what, after the initial like swim out, you kind of, it's about sort of just treading water. And, um, you know, you obviously got swim pins on. I mean, without, I mean, I, whenever I lose often, you know, now and again, one gets sucked off or snaps Mm. and, um, yeah then that becomes a nightmare swimming with a camera and no swim fins. Even with just one swim fin it's harder. So they they are the most critical thing really I think. So
0: Amazing. I mean when you you know when I watch you know you, you watch film and you see photographers you know right under the wave um getting those shots I mean it's a fine line it looks like a real fine line between capturing and you know remaining um in one piece or getting completely nailed
1: (laughs) yeah um yeah it is and you just you generally the thing that the thing that surfers and generally people don't realize is is that when you're in the water you really feel the motion of a wave and so Mm. as long as you're not actually caught inside because you kind of got that circular energy of a wave breaking yeah it kind of sucks you through it naturally. Mm. So you, you have to really screw up to get sucked over the balls yeah. or, or hit someone really because the, the wave natural, naturally does, but you kind of have to get used to that.
0: Yeah, um, it's time in the water, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah but it is a fine line. You, generally speaking, uh, you know when you're shooting those close proximity surfs with a fisheye, generally you're shooting with either guys you actually know and are working with or in the case of somewhere like you know Hawaii when there's loads of pros, or you, you're shooting with pro surfers who are, they're they are not that aware of you, but they know how to work with photographers and that kind of thing. So they know yeah, if someone's an, there, there, there and, that, an awareness. and that kind of helps. I mean, yeah. the, what the one of the most dangerous things is to swim out amongst a bunch of normal surfers with a fisheye lens, trying to get close to them, because you know both of you, both <laughs> neither of you know what the other one's going to do.
0: So. Yeah, got it. Yeah. So. Amazing. So, um, back to that story. You you released um, the book Numb. Yeah. T- tell me about that and why why was that? Um,
1: well, myself and Ian Batrick, who's a separate time, and um, and as well as a, and somebody came along as well, a guy called Timmy Turner in California. We kind of we've done all of these cold water trips, and we wrote about them all in magazines, and we. we we fortuitously sort of put together a book, really, and it was and we wanted to do something which was quite, you know, told the real story, which wasn't kind of um, watered down in magazines or sensationalized or anything like that. And mm. and we just wanted to show the whole kind of thing. And it was it was fortuitous on a number of levels. One, we we put the book together. A good friend of mine designed it um, and we wanted just to make a really special coffee table book out of it. And what we, sort of places
0: had you, had you been to? So tell us about these places that you So you basically,
1: visited. yeah, what we did was kind of ahead of our time a little bit yeah, with... because this was when, this would be... Um, I mean, they, I guess they started in the late 90s, but really from about 2003 to about 2012. Mm-hmm. And we, we'd already spent a lot of time in Ireland, which actually wasn't in the book, but um, then a lot of time up in Scotland iceland norway and canada and what we wanted to do was just to get more and more remote we'd spent a lot of time in the tropics and seeing it getting overcrowded so we wanted to get as isolated as possible really. so it was, it was and that
0: we... the, the the remote isolation was what drove you to those places. yeah
1: it was really and it's kind of you know it's part of that adventure side but it's the remote isolation and we did it on an absolute shoestring all the time as well just sleeping rough and that kind of was all part of it, mm. and and we literally went. We started in Scotland, the Outer Islands of Scotland, Orkney, and the Hebrides. Um, we we did spend quite a lot of time in Ian's van up in Norway. We did loads of trips exploring Iceland, and we kind of the first couple. Were, there was virtually nobody surfing there, and we got pretty wild up there. And we we wanted to find a real wilderness, and through Timmy Turner, we got introduced to the Bruhweiler brothers in Vancouver Island. Right. And and eventually that was kind of the the climax if you like of the book and everything because they actually took us out about I think it was about 4 hours from civilization just dropped us for 6 weeks in the wilderness. Um and and we literally just no no contact, no way of getting in contact <laughs> with people and we what was that kind like was that a bit and surreal? stuff and yeah. Oh, it was amazing. It was you, it's very odd when you kind of phone up and say goodbye to, you know, I said, oh, I'll speak to you in six weeks to my wife. And there's, there literally is, once you're there, that's it. Even a radio, you don't, even if there's real big trouble, we would have had to have paddled out and radioed somehow, I think. So, um and you go in with some provisions. We caught fish as well. And we had a little camp next to this wave. It's a really good wave as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was it. And just live day to day like that. And we only probably had five or six days of real good surf as well so um and it was just good it was sick, good seeing li- living totally totally off the grid there was no way we could get in contact with anyone um you know we dealt with bears every day and there were um, mountain lions and wolves and all sorts of things like that so it was, yeah it was a pretty awesome experience I, I take it for granted a bit that it happened but yeah but yeah so. And did you
0: did you feel, because I, I know there's, um you know, I can't remember, who, but they talk about, you know, when we, we've got about three days of culture in us or something like that. I think I heard the phrase, mm. you know, if you sort of remove yourself from, you know, our civilization, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, apparently it takes, you know, it's about, it's about three days or so of kind of disconnection and you're sort of, you're entering a, a sort of different, sort of way of being i guess a different Mm. sort of way of feeling and sensing the world did you does it did it six weeks that's a big amount of time did you have moments where you felt you know that you were really really kind of looking at the world differently
1: yeah you realize you do do very quickly realize that, that you know what you're out there and the way you're living is probably the way you know humans as a species are designed to live hmm. and and you are you break the day up into actually doing stuff to live hmm. <laughs> if you see what i mean hmm. so you know we we did bring in supplies and things like that but we we caught a lot of fish when, when it was calm enough and fish for salmon in the rivers and and that sort of thing as well and 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 you do very quickly realize that how pointless a lot of things that we get trapped with and and also i i always think that it it's almost like we're trying to replace the feeling of really living with things because you know i i think it was almost like the best way i can liken it is is being in a real life kind of computer game for people mm. who've never been in the world and that's in that mm. you actually have to do stuff to to survive every day you're not mm. going to die but you know, you actually have to complete tasks every day to actually do things, which, in you know, when you're, when you're at home, you don't really.
0: Yeah, you just press yeah, buttons set, and but turn taps. You press and buttons,
1: and... And, yeah, you can phone up takeaway and that sort of thing. Here, it was like, you've got to keep that fire going. If the fire goes out, you get cold, things don't dry, you can't have nothing to cook on. So that becomes a constant mission to keep that fire going. And at night, if you haven't got a good fire going, bears come into camp and all that sort of thing. And, and you also... Very quickly realize when you first see a full-grown black bear exactly how you know (laughs) relevant you are as a species in some respects because they're so powerful and huge and masters of their own environment and it's like holy shit so so yeah I I don't know I don't I I guess because we were we knew we were coming out at the end of it
0: yeah
1: I mean Ian and another guy Eric stayed longer and they ended up having to hunt for everything by then they'd run out of supplies and they were like you know they were they were hunting the stuff but it it kind of you know it 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 certainly um makes it makes you realize what it made me realize more what we're losing Hmm. that experience of being able to do that because we would generally try to do that in europe and you can kind of get a bit close to it in places like iceland and norway and scotland but you're never that far away from somebody or something to help you or a shop to buy something in mm. that you need whereas out there that's it you know we didn't even know when someone was going to come in and pick us up i'd given the the boat driver my flight details and he just said i'll get in as close to those as i possibly can so wow. because you, it was a, it was in such a remote bit and literally it just faced straight out into the pacific any swell made it very hard to get in and out so yeah wow but it's it's a pretty awesome experience when you're out there and it's i guess a little bit you know unnerving at times as well
0: yeah right you feel alive
1: uh, yeah you do feel alive yeah you feel alive and helpless yeah and but very fulfilled at the same time so it's kind of yeah it's a real mixture
0: yeah 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 and have you uh, do you have you sort of thought about that since you know you know revisiting that kind of experience or
1: well i i think we, i think i will one day i don't know really it was it was a bit different back then i mean life changes as you go along and it's mm. back then i could just you know i could just go and do that and yeah. I've, I've got other responsibilities yeah. now with children and that sort of thing and yeah it makes it a little bit more difficult um i also don't think it's quite then it was the local boys did it but it wasn't really something that many people do people go there now and do it more often um and i'm not sure there's the i'm not sure there's the drive to do it there so much anymore i would like to do it in other places but even when you go to like remote scottish and norwegian islands there's there's signs of past civilization there um Whereas there just isn't, mm. it is genuine wilderness up mm. on that that coast of Canada. So, but it's an experience that everybody should. Uh, obviously, not everyone can, but it's as close to getting back to nature as possible. Really, yeah, in many
0: respects.
1: Yeah. So, but the th- but the thing that really kind of fired me up out there, look, and it didn't at the time because we were a long way away from anyone, and it was the fact that there was still evidence of humans through plastic and stuff on the beaches then. So.
0: And so was this, yeah. tell me about that, so this, is, I guess, in a way, was the start of the plastic project for you?
1: Yeah, so what happened was we, we released the book. It was, it was pretty fortuitous because it was a proper coffee table book, and actually what happened was um, uh, we couldn't really afford to publish it. And I was like, I was really stressing about it because, obviously, you know, it was co- it was costing about twelve thousand pounds to print, and mm. we didn't want any sponsors on it because they'd ask for things and did and all this sort of stuff. And uh, yeah. about and this is completely by good fortune, about a m- three weeks before it was due to be printed, and it was already running late. And uh, I got a call from my bank, I think, and they said, ah. Oh, Da, 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 you had an old loan with us, and we massively overcharged you, and we need to pay you back all this PPI stuff. What? And, um, that never happens. They, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'd, I'd actually contacted them, and they'd looked into it, and I thought nothing's going to come of this. I'd literally bought loads of um, camera gear with this loan, and it was it was years before as well. And uh, next thing, a check for eight thousand quid dropped through the post, and that paid for the book. <laughs> amazing. It was incredible because we wouldn't have done it otherwise. And it was late anyway. And then it, it actually arrived, I think, three days before Christmas. And we had all these people who had ordered it. And I I was still delivering, I think, on Christmas Eve around to get make people got it. But after Christmas, I started doing some talks and and uh, slideshows with it. And I started to sort of introduce the environmental aspect of it because my background is more in environmental science. Mm. And it was pretty obvious that people were in were engaging more when you had this adventure alongside talking about environmentalism mm-hmm. and i just expanded on it as the book as the book as we sold out of the book um we kind of i kind of transitioned it into the plastic project really because i realized totally didn't realize when i made the book but i had pictures of like bears in the wilderness walking along the beach and there's shots of them with all plastic tubing which had washed ashore and and a big gold cup and all this sort of thing and that kind of started it going from there there onwards and then I found a whole load of plastic on a beach in Iceland and that that was really the the real beginning of it and the big driver was that I've always my background is I did um, environmental sciences at university and I'd Mm -hmm. always wanted to do something within science but I've always been a strong believer that statistics wash over ninety nine percent of people, and we hear too many of them mm. now as well, and it's really imagery and things like that that really capture people's imagination and make them change and And so it was obvious using especially surfing and the adventure side that we could reach people that normal normal things couldn't reach because you yeah. get even you know from from a class of kids to you know just people off the street at any age they're they're interested in it and that's the range of people i've talked to you know i i did talk to a green party um group in suffolk last year and they were all over 60 and they were all enthralled by it and then i'd be in a primary school the next day and they'd all be enthralled by it and yeah and it and it was that connection really of adventure surfing and the environment with with the adventure surfing leading up to you should all go and do this once in your life but if we don't do something about the environment you actually won't be able to kind yeah. of thing. So, yeah but
0: like re- rewind for a second you're you're mm-hmm. you're out in these you know really super remote parts of the world you're you know you're disconnected from sort of culture you're you're surfing you're taking photos you're you're living as kind of you know a very deliberate kind of life <laughs> just surviving and mm. being present and you're taking photos and then when when did you start really turning the camera and going, you know, sort of with intent, starting to capture the plastic? What, and why why did that start to happen?
1: Um, I started it after the book. Really, it was um, it was it, it was in Iceland. I was walking along a beach and I found totally randomly an old styrofoam McDonald's Big Mac canister and uh, and a bottle of Coke, and that was that was all only debris on this whole beach. And it kind of got me thinking. Right, if they're here. Mm this is this is ridiculous because we're so remote and then i started deliberately shooting everything as i saw it um but kind of the most interesting thing was was the fact that i then consciously went back through my archive and since other photographers archives and i realized that i had accidentally shot a lot of plastic Mm. and i then also realized that i'd actually used plastic to make some shots more interesting as well so Mm. I had shots where there were like washed up fishing nets I'd used as a foreground to make a shot more interesting, all this sort of stuff. So uh, it, it kind of made me look back through my archive and then, then shoot it as well. So we shoot it very deliberately. And I think all the other photographers I talk to now have you know, especially in this Instagram age, um, mm. I'm good. I'm good friends with um, Chris Burkhart, who's obviously ginormous mm. in the social media world mm. as a photographer, and it, he's kind of he, him, and people like him and me. You know, we we kind of put shots up to inspire and help brands inspire people and all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah,
1: and there is a certain amount of. Um, uh, we've got a duty to actually show the other side as well yeah you can't just show people that the great things without showing the bad things basically so. but
0: it's interesting isn't it because you could sort of i mean and you sort of think about it you're saying the age of the filter and the edit and the manipulation mm. and you know and you look at how everything from fashion to glamour to you know you know airbrushing and touching in you know in many ways it's the plastic piece is is a similar thing right we're, we're yeah we're turning you know we're saying well actually this is reality <laughs>
1: yeah exactly yeah um, i mean i know i mean chris chris has just sent me a whole lot of shots for the film and and it's really interesting because he's got shots of some waves which you people will have seen on instagram where he's cropped out the rubbish hmm. and then he's got the real shots as well which he sort of <laughs> which he which we've got And we we kind of talked to him about and it's quite interesting what people, you know, he's he's in places shooting for like a brand campaign or something. And people don't want to see a plastic all over the beach in a brand campaign or something. So they're cropped out. They're not they're not photoshopped out anywhere. They're just shot out. But um, yeah, and I've done the same. You know, you want to show people the the perfection rather than the reality sometimes
0: yeah no and i think i think we you know we're we're all we're all we've all been there but i guess it's just it feels like Mm. we're an interesting moment in time where you know now i don't know it's just it feels like sort of we're starting to open up now to the what is reality (laughs) yeah you know and we do need to we do need to maybe widen the lens now and look at these things just just for the sake of folks coming into the um so the plastic project so when did you then start to sort of you know put this you know put the actual the plastic project was formed and it was out in the world and this was now a part of your mission tell me what that well about. I think we, we started
1: I started doing it when I was at Wavelength about eight years ago mm. um so it was about eight, eight or nine years ago when we consciously started to push the plastic agenda mm but it was very much kind of a soft kind of um, push alongside other things. It would be kind of within articles. Um, and then we would, you know, talk about that as a kind of a bit of a side thing, really. But I guess it was it was about five years ago when we were just totally kind of honed in on it and mm-hmm. really started, and it's been incredible in the UK how five years ago, no one would even, you know, even some environmental organizations barely recognized it at the yeah. time and and now it's just you know it's brilliant it's come to the forefront with you know people like two minute beach clean coming along and they've they've started a revolution where it comes to picking up things and then Surfers against sewage have come along, come along and stepped up on that side of things as well so and then things like blue planet getting it out to the masses but it's a case of really it's a case of just keeping it keeping it rolling and you'd be amazed outside of the uk you know you we're in a bubble in the uk in some respects as anybody in any countries but the it, it chain you know it's not a global phenomenon this suddenly everybody being aware of it and doing things about it
0: that's for sure yeah tell us i mean what's it like in france
1: well france is france is quite interesting because on some fronts they're way ahead of us like for example in supermarkets have had these
0: uh they haven't
1: Um, carrier bags have been ruled out long before we did for example Mm -hmm. um when you get your fruit they have these starch based bags and i believe instead of plastic bags to put them in for fruit and veg and i believe they've had those for quite a few years um but then you go to the beach and they've got the biggest plastic problem here in certainly in the atlantic of europe it's incredible and they have tractors that go up and down and rake the beaches but because so much wood comes ashore here naturally as well they they, don't, they simply can't pick it all up because they're mm. clearing wood out of the way first and there isn't a culture here anything like as big as picking up plastic as you're going for a stroll along the beach yeah there are guys who are doing it but it is certainly nowhere near as noticeable
0: so. yeah I can remember down in um, near Bear Ritz a couple of years ago my, me and my daughters were doing some timid beach cleans but people were looking at us quite strangely yeah moment. exactly yeah um, people think i'm very odd
1: yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> everyone here is picking up driftwood for their fires and that and you know it just doesn't happen yeah. for anything else so
0: so what um you know obviously as you said like the uh, you know the, the the plastics piece the single-use plastics and the ocean plastics it's last few last sort of couple of years but last you know even six months i guess it's just the energy and noise is is you know Really, raising in the UK. Um, yeah. I guess there's lots of ways to kind of look at this problem, but there's it's interesting. You know, I've seen. Um, it feels to me that one area that I'm quite interested in is is that it's the plastics pollution piece is sort of opening the door at least to some bigger conversations about how we mm. live. You know. Yeah. Um, that I that I haven't seen any other issue being able to do um no you know what i mean like climate change all these kind of Definitely. things always yeah. quite hard for mm-hmm. people but it, it feels like the the plastics um uh issue is you know potentially a gateway to some some bigger questions i think a lot of people on the grassroots on the edges have you know been really happy to see that starting to happen does it
1: would you think that's something in that oh definitely and i think i mean i I, it's made my whole family reassess on how we live and we try and live as certainly single use plastic free Mm. but as plastic free as possible and it and it is hard and you suddenly realize how much energy is going into producing things that we don't really need and how hard it is to change your way of life to actually deal with it as well Mm. and but i know for a fact that i know a lot of people who are trying to face up to that and and it i don't think there's enough people looking at it. it hasn't reached enough people really but i definitely think it's it's making more and more people think about how you know we all live as a it, it, and not take for granted all the resources we have yeah. people treat them as finite uh, as um you know infinite resources and yeah. they're not yeah. so i think that's the the big thing but having said that i still think it's nowhere near enough i mean you still yeah it's what do you not... what
0: does what what does good look like for you like where where would you where do you hope we get to what sort of things need to happen
1: well i think i, I mean it, i think all single-use plastics which are non-essential have to go mm-hmm. eventually they have to now pl- plastic shouldn't be completely um you know taken out of the equation by everything there are things sure. which it's essential for and yeah. there are things which last a long time i mean pretty much every bit of transport we use has plastic in and yeah it it, we wouldn't be able to use it without plastic because of weight and convenience but it's complex as well isn't it because there's some
0: there's some foodstuffs for instance that are sort of you know plastic is plastic wrapping helps that thing last for longer and then you're it's a complex system right food waste, plastic where all this stuff i mean there's a
1: big there's a big issue because i try and buy everything organic um down here and if if you want anything organic in a supermarket in France, it's almost always wrapped in plastic because organic food doesn't last as long as yeah. um, other food, and thus the plastic helps it last longer. And so it's a real complicated one. And we actually now shop at an actual um, like dedicated fruit and veg store uh, yeah. here, which is you know all paper bags, all organic. But the problem is with things like that is because not so many people do it. I, it adds. 10 euro a week onto a grocery bill and yeah we we can just about afford to deal with that every week and we want to and we'll cut down but you know a lot of people you know that probably adds up to about 40 euro 40 pounds a month extra on your grocery bills a month Mm. which people can't afford to do so that's one of the biggest issues i think we face is actually the expense of being plastic free in single use things is you know hurts everybody and and it you know that's difficult and i think we look at things like, um, I think the, the kind of the rise in co- uh, takeaway coffee, which, mm. you know, because of the cafe culture down here, you do not see Starbucks and Costa coffee and all that sort of thing where yeah. people sit down and have a cup of coffee in a, in a cafe. Um, but takeaway cups and things like that, there are alternatives to them.
0: Yeah. Well, um, it's bonkers. I was, in, which um, exist. I was in, um, I was in Pret-a-Manger last week up in, in London, um, and the sh- the shift to um you know, keep cups and reusable cups yeah. is is happening real- well, it seems to be happening really fast. I was chatting to the guy because yeah. I was literally looking and pretty much everybody who was in the queue at eight thirty in the morning had a had a reusable cup. Um yeah. and I was yeah. saying to him, This is you know, this seems like it's really happening fast. He was like, It's crazy. He said it's really, mm. really gaining traction. I mean it helps when your coffee's fifty p cheaper, um yeah. if you bring your own cup. Um but it's, it's 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 quite interesting because it's quite it's slightly uncomfortable, you know, because it's kind of messy with your cup. I've got mine in yeah. a plastic bag, and you you sort of have to scrabble around for it in the queue, and and yeah. it sort of goes against the kind of slick, fast, you know, consumerist yeah, exactly. kind of yeah. culture yeah. that we've been part <laughs> of, you know. But it's quite I don't know, it's something quite nice about it, I think. Um,
1: yeah, I think I mean I, that's definitely going in the right directions i can remember when we started making the film a couple of years ago we sat down and talked to um one of the cup suppliers who supply all of starbucks cups um and they had an alternative to one which had plastic in it but and the cost, i I can't remember off the top of my head the cost per cup was infinitesimally small but when you added it up to how many cups they sell every year Mm. It was actually, a, you know, it was in the millions. It mm. would cost more for mm. Starbucks to go to this sort of cup, and but it was still very small per cup they could charge to do it. But um, so the options are there. It's a case of, you know, there's a there's a business angles to it, and and really I think it's going to be consumer power that gets these places to change. Yeah. I think legislation is is good but i think legislation without consumer power behind it is is useless really so
0: but it, it, it is as I, say, I think there is it is it is there's something beyond the single use isn't it because it is mm. it is a shift of 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 you know there is a shift in of of how we how we behave how we live because they're always on yeah always on demand everything you know i want this i'm moving fast i want this i want to buy that i want to be this you know that's that's a little bit what this is all about isn't it because we definitely
1: i mean i i mean one thing about living down here in france is that you know i i worked in i i I used to live in cornwall for a while and worked in cornwall and then i i worked for a little while in the city for a magazine up there Mm. and uh and literally lunch was quickly run out grab something which was inevitably in packaging or you had your own packed lunch with you and you ate it whilst you eat whereas Mm. here it's very much it's a two-hour lunch break let's go and sit down and have something so and and immediately because of that lifestyle there isn't all of that um single-use plastic because i mean i i wouldn't know for example around here where to go for like a pre-packed sandwich yeah i I don't i couldn't tell you where to get one here um and i couldn't I, i i know one place that does take away coffee and they use um completely compostable stuff anyway yeah, yeah. everywhere else you have to sit down and drink it uh, and so that's a that's a very big lifestyle thing I, yeah. I don't know if that's the same in bordeaux or paris i should imagine life's faster paced there but yeah. i but do it think it it's, yeah. it's we it's have awful. to change our lifestyle to yeah. accommodate what's going on on the planet really that's right so.
0: it, it feels to me it's always felt to me that there's an element of slowing down a little bit mm. becoming a bit yeah. more considered not you know we're not talking about a sort of, you know, massive transition, but it does feel like without that, you know, that ability to kind of slow a little bit, to become a bit more considered about our needs and wants and you know our consumption without that the idea that you'll just sort of transition to kind of a sort of like a a disposable packaging culture do you know what i mean Mm. it just i don't know it always feels something else that kind of needs to come as well as you know all the innovation and all the different types of anyway interesting so i I think
1: one of the bit one of the biggest issues which covers it all is is that and and this is not this is something which is global is that people are constantly wanting things at a certain price or want more mm. for not so much money and we're producing things which simply don't last as long they're not single use but they don't last very long so you know you find a lot of bits of plastic on the beaches which aren't single use as much as you do single use which have come from toys or bits of boxes or yeah. you know so there there is a there needs to be a transition to a bit like in the clothing world where you have kind of fast fashion where it's pumped out cheap and quick isn't very good for the environment doesn't last very long but then mm. you just go buy another bit you need things that last so
0: it's totally bad because i i remember uh, spent about just under a year in costa rica in 2010 and we lived right on the beach and i remember after some of the storms seeing you know all kinds of plastics coming in and, and i remember mm. one day walking on the beach and seeing loads of kind of medical waste i remember seeing like um you know tubes yeah. and old drip bags and you know like just yeah and you know you look at you just look at you know you look at the whole medical thing and you know the amount of plastics that are just again part of that that whole scenario you know mm. just delivering kind of medical care to people and it's it's so embedded isn't it it's sort of no it's incredible in it's
1: it's it's impossible to unravel it from a lot of areas could it just end up costing too much and i think the medical medical industry is is got a huge issue there how mm. you've unravel it all from that and maybe you can't from some so.
0: yeah so the plastic project today tell me about um where are you heading with it what's what's the setup now where, where are you trying to go with it what what's, well what's we've the plans? done
1: what we've tried to do is what we we started making a film a couple of years ago and it was actually meant to come out last year and we actually rethought it because there were lots of films coming out which were essentially just you know, shock horror this is the problem blah, 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 and it covered everything and we were talking to a lot of scientists and one of the big issues that I was facing making a film was that I'd interview a scientist today and then in two months time what he had said about what plastic was doing in fish no, was no longer mm. up to date and there was that issue going on all the time and things were changing so I feel a lot of the films which have been made have um, they haven't gone out of date but they have they've aged very quickly they're right. still relevant with their message but yeah what's actually in them so we wanted to come at it <clears throat> we wanted to come at it from a, a new angle for the plastic project something which could show something more and what we've done is is um we've kind of taken my photographs and then broaden it to every surf photographer in the world really an adventure photographer and we've managed to build up a timeline of almost 40 years of photography where where especially surf photographers have captured the rise in plastic pollution on beaches by accident to start with and then on purpose and we've actually got a, a two decade timeline for the beaches down here in france from 1998 to the current day and it shows the escalation in plastic over that time we've got a similar one for bali and then we've got one for a very remote beach in iceland as well and and so, really, it's about what the real message here is. What we're going to try and get over is the fact that plastic pollution is really bad today. But you look at shots twenty years ago, and it was already something we should have been doing about then. Yeah. And I think, and I think the key of what we're going to try and do is, is to say, look, to, to people like governments and things, all very well, you saying that by 2030 or 2025 we're going to do this, but if you'd have said that you know, in the mid-90s, you'd have been on, on target for five years later, but now it's not quick enough, basically. Right. You know, we've I, I, it's been amazing what we've unearthed, and often by accident. I mean, we've got an incredible shot by my friend Roger Sharp, who, who shot a session down here in March 1998. And I can remember at the time sitting in the magazine looking at it and thinking, God, how much rubbish was on the beach? And we discussed it back then. Mm. And now it's like, there was almost as much rubbish as comes ashore now already then and wow. this is 20 years ago yeah. so <clears throat> and we've kind of and that's really the crux of the film now it's about how a group of surf photographers have accidentally then on purpose documented something which nobody else has really there isn't a scientific documentation of this anywhere it's a bunch of uh, you know yeah you wouldn't people you wouldn't have expected to capture what's an important timeline of pollution really
0: and so you so, so the film is coming and you're gonna you're gonna do a little tour of that
1: or what's the well what the plan is i mean what we've spent a lot of last year doing our educational stuff which was quite big and we did a primary school um a primary school project which is still going with a company called a tail and folds and cnn yeah. combined mm-hmm. and then we've also got an open resource whereby any high school in the world or college can just email me and then they get like a file of images from all around the world with some information so they can show their pupils the problem in different places Hmm. so that so we worked a lot on that and then the film we're kind of coming to the last bit now and it will be out may june time and we'll do a tour with that and then what we're going to do is we're going to make it free but we're going to release it so so basically any of our partners who've got a newsletter or anything they can kind of send it out with the new newsletter but it won't actually be just free to look on the internet people actually have to kind of sign in look at it yeah and and because i think you have a bit more perceived value then and people actually sit down and watch it. it's not very really yeah. long it's about 20 25 minutes long
0: yeah
1: but the film is really it's kind of a bit about surf photography and it's a bit about how we've accidentally captured this yeah and a bit about how what we can do and then we're also there's a bit of how the surf industry is responding, or should be responding, as a leader against plastic, as we're yeah. big polluters as well. So,
0: yeah. And what's... you're
1: yeah, gone. No, gone. Sorry.
0: No, go no I'm just saying. What? Um. What's What's the ask or the invitation to people? What would you love like to see happen now with the plastic project? And... <clears throat>
1: um. I mean. I think. I, I think what we're trying to do is is actually the future of the project is to inspire people to get out into the environment for the right reasons and then do something whilst they're there to help the environment. Mm. It's the whole adventure with purpose angle of it. It's very much, you can go out and document something going wrong whilst you're on an your adventure or actually go out and do something whilst you're on an adventure or, or become part of an adventure, which is going to do something mm. for example. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I think it's, it's still very, very much, a case of we want people to go out and experience what's out there wild or as close to wild as you can get because that's the only way people will actually appreciate what we've got um so that's still the key very much so but i think the the real aim is just to make people realize what's really going wrong and inspire them to get out and try and do something even if it spreads to the next person that they know and like that so
0: and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like companies starting to kind of engage with the pollution issue, mm. um, which is kind of interesting as someone that uh, I've sort of spent years of my career trying to work, working with, with brands and helping them sell more yeah. shit by associating themselves with culture. Um, mm. And, 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 you know, there's signs of, companies leaning into the pollution problem and it's you know pollution you could say it's becoming an engagement it's it's starting to engage people. yeah so how do you feel about all that about you know and what what would you would you work with for instance would you work with a, a, a what you would class as a currently as a polluter if they were seeking it's, to It's a difficult
1: it's a know. difficult one it depends what they're trying to do i mean i um one of our big supporters of what i've done is um surf dome who are obviously a huge retailer mm. and I was quite standoffish when we first talked and then their sustainability manager was look, like look this is what we're doing and they've removed i've forgotten how many tons of plastic out of their yeah packaging and supply chain it's huge and they're now because they've removed it they're now influencing the rest of the industry who yeah. send them stuff to sell so that's one interesting angle of a company which was certainly a polluter that have actually positively changed i i could never there are there are things like drinks manufacturers who mm. you know going to recycle plastic water bottles well you know that's that's that for me is not solving the problem because those plastic water bottles have still got the potential to go into the ocean it should be looking at a way of replacing the plastic in it completely yeah. um so it's very difficult it depends exactly how they're trying to tackle it i mean i know coca-cola sponsor one of the cleanup groups in Ireland and yeah. I find that quite hypocritical in some ways because the one thing you always find on any beach, wherever I've been, is a product made by Coca Cola. And whilst, you know, when I've tried to interview them, they'll always argue till they're blue in the face it wasn't their fault, they actually do have the money and the power to do something about it. They could just go back to glass bottles, yeah. <laughs> for example. I know there's there's economic and environmental implications in that as well. So it's not yeah. straightforward but so it's very difficult. But then you've got people like um Lego, for example, and I know for several years they've been working on getting rid of plastic and yeah. they're getting very close to it now. Um so it's quite and interesting, the same tech they're using is the same tech that's gonna end up in surfboard blanks as well. So right. um sugarcane based plastic. So it, it it's difficult though, because you can't sell out to a polluter to help them cover their pollution.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> Basically.
1: I guess it's interesting because
0: yeah. it? we're sort of in this, this we're living in this moment of time mm. where you've got all this kind of pollution in the ocean and more of it every single day microplastics making its way into mm. the system so you've got on one hand you've got this kind of clean up, this sort of huge cleanup that needs to go on and on the other hand you've got this kind of you want to see everyone kind of innovating really fast their way out of it so that you know, we're putting the brakes on the pollution actually reaching mm. these places and also then, you know, systems to help capture better recycling on land. And so you've got all these different dimensions, I guess, that are all all needed. So where? Yeah, I guess.
1: But as, it, it yeah, go on. Yeah, it is difficult as well. I mean, go, yeah, because the, the biggest issue I face and I know a lot of other groups like me face is that really we don't actually have any money yeah to actually course. go out you know and and the people with money are often the polluters and it's like right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you deal with that because i'd love to be able to like you know send this film to every school on the planet but to actually make the t- and it's possible but to make the time to do it and to
0: yeah
1: get it all sorted costs money and you know the, actually getting that money is is really really hard yeah and that that's the yeah that's the you know the juggling of it all yeah yeah no front.
0: absolutely absolutely no. um interesting times
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah well, i mean things are gonna have to change i mean the the water bottle and sort of soft drinks world is possibly the the most incredible area which has to change yeah and that, and it's going to be the most difficult to change because it's so profitable and and it, it is i don't know there's going to have to be a design change there because they're not going to be able to get rid of plastic.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't think it has to. Some a new product has to come along. They could all switch back to glass, but you know, I've I've looked into it in quite a lot of depth, and you know, glass from a weight point of view and everything, and you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily work in every case. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a gnarly gnarly old problem,
0: isn't it? Because again, you think yeah, it's a a nightmare. You you think of the exactly just on the economics. You think of the amount of people that are you know, employed mm. to produce plastics and sell plastic bottles. And yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's um, there's, there's, and, there's and, going and, to be, there's going to be fallout. And the other,
1: the other, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the other big thing is that what a lot of people don't realize is, is that plastics helps to keep the cost of our fuel down. Right. Because it's a, it's a great by-product from oil. Yes. Oil, and, and it means that, you know, if plastics didn't exist and, and they're extracting oil simply for fuel, it would be much more expensive. So Yeah. So is it yeah, it's a it's a big issue. It's yeah. way more complicated. It's you know, just ban all plastic.
0: So Yeah, exactly.
1: Well it's, it's, so this
0: I mean this this podcast uh stuff that I'm doing is it's called the Spaceship Earth, and it's exactly all about mm-hmm. that, that everything is interconnected, you know. Yeah. yeah. Every, ev- everything has an impact somewhere and everything, you know, has implications and consequences and you know because it is all interconnected it is a it is a living system so it's uh yeah because there's also
1: there's also a big um which i don't i haven't really tapped into yet but there's a big movement that the fact that because plastics is helping keeping the oil industry afloat it means that burning fossil fuels is way better than anything else still and thus it keeps you know plastics are helping to fire climate change and things like that as well so it's like oh yeah yeah it's, it is totally connected so. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah so <laughs> mate, well look it's, it's brilliant to
0: um to get the story of, of where you're heading with all this just quickly like so if if people want to connect in or want to like what what can what can folks do with the plastic project right now
1: well i mean come come along and follow us on the website and instagram um at the plastic project and then you know i i i hope i'm going to be able to afford just to bring it to as many people as possible because the the film goes with a slideshow and a gallery and what have you. And, and that's, that's really the goal. We want to have these really, truly interactive and thought provoking events, which are not only, you know, it's not only about plastic. You're not going to sit down and be depressed about seeing oceans full of plastic. You're going to kind of see adventure and surfing as well and great photography and hear from a lot of the world's great surf photographers along the way as well. So it's kind of, and and I hope, the way we're going to engage in it is going to really kind of turn people on to want to go out and have their own adventures as well so brilliant well yeah
0: we'll 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 follow we'll follow with keen interest and see 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 how it heads up. and just because the kids thing just last thing i guess because i remember you talking about the schools program where that feels like a another uh, um you know i mean everyone says Poor poor bloody kids. We're putting all we're putting all the change on them.
1: Mm. <laughs> it's all down yeah. to you
0: kids, but um but there is something. I mean I did a I did a um sign my kids' schools up to the Surface Against Sewage plastic free schools thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and I had to go and I'd go and do a and the head teacher's like, yeah, cool, right, but you have to come and do the assembly. So I, so I went down and did, did these assemblies to 400 kids, which was slightly, slightly ter- terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but you know, they, when you sort of, like, you know, you show them pictures and you ask them, like, what's going on here? And, you know, they, they're just intuitively, they're like, this is absurd. Why, why are we doing yeah. this?
1: <laughs> I, I think one of the big things we have to realise is, is that it's future designers who are going to design our way out of this and they're probably the kids who are in school right now. mm that's that's the reality of it you know there's somebody sitting somewhere probably in a i don't know in a high school or a college who is going to go on and i don't know he might be a chemist or a designer or whatever and he's going to find something which is you know which in 10 years time we laugh at plastic so yeah yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah. fascinating
1: amazing all right
0: well tim thanks
1: so much for sharing
0: the story of that and um no problem um yeah and we'll 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 keep our eyes out for for the film and the, when it lands. Yeah, thank you. Um, brilliant. So there we go. That was uh, Tim Num from the Plastic Project. Um, hope you enjoyed listening to Tim doing some extraordinary things. Um, check it. Check out the, his work. It's um, theplastic-project.com. Um, you can find more about the film that's coming and stuff he's doing with schools and all kinds of fantastic stuff. And follow the Plastic Project on Instagram and other feeds. Um, cool. So that wraps up episode three. Um, please do uh, reach out if you've got any thoughts, questions, ideas. I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can get me uh, on Twitter at Dan Solo on Instagram at Dan Solo's um, or drop me a line Dan at Um it would be great to hear from you it would be great to get any signals out there that uh, there's something in this work uh, these uh, work I'm not sure is it work not really there's something in these podcasts that you're enjoying it would be fantastic it's really um, just good to get a sign not that it's necessary but it's just good to get some signs so please do please do please um, do You know, press like or recommend or whatever it is on the various things you can get this on on SoundCloud or on um, the iTunes podcast platform and I'm trying to work out how to make it more accessible and easy but like I say it's learning by doing I'm working this all out Um, fantastic well uh, yes we'll be moving on next episode we'll probably be moving away from plastics um, possibly moving away from the oceans although I am going to be very close to the ocean in the next couple of weeks, so there's going to be something. Anyway, uh, enjoy, and uh, remember, there are no uh, passengers on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. Uh, Peace and out until next time. Bye.